Now, when we're talking about endurance exercise and distance running, half marathons and marathons, it's almost entirely aerobic. So it's all about your aerobic fitness and your ability to actually use oxygen, transport it from the air that you breathe in. You know, there's, the air that you breathe in has got 21% oxygen in it. What you need to do is extract that oxygen, um, load it into your blood, deliver it to your muscles, and then your muscles use that to produce energy. Hello everyone, this is Vikas again, and you are listening to Run With Fit Page. Week after week, we have been progressing. We've been progressing in terms of listenership, in terms of the countries that we listen to and listen in, and we continue to get more and more lovely feedback and reviews from all of you. It is amazing to see and hear that we are heard in more than 100 countries in the world. Thank you so much for making us look better and thank you so much for valuing our content. In today's conversation, we are going to talk about running faster. Isn't this the most lovely topic for all of you? It is for me, right? We keep looking for hacks. We keep looking for magic pills and we keep looking for tips that will help us get better. But be surprised that there is actually no magic pill. It is that old, boring, consistent training, good nutrition, great recovery, and all of this doing over a period of months and years comes together to make you run faster. But I do not want you to trust me. I want you to hear this from one of the finest in the world. I am talking about Dr. Andrew Jones, who is the professor at University of Exeter. He is known for his world-class research and has been involved in some of the finest projects in the world. He's someone who was involved in the first Breaking 2 project with Nike. He propagates various researches that he brings about running and running better. If you look him up online and you will see the content references are in the show notes, you'll see that his research, almost all of these are only focused about running. Not endurance sport more broadly, but about running. How lovely that is, isn't it? And so we thought of having able to speak with him on all things running. And that is exactly what we are doing today. Today, we are discussing the basic terms, the fundamentals of how one can get faster. And we are also talking about a couple of small tips that could help you get from point A to point B, that is from zero to mile 26.2 or to get from zero to kilometer 42.2 and complete your marathon in a faster and a stronger way. Let's welcome Dr. Jones to the show and learn all about it. Dr. Jones, uh, this is weekly show, Run With Fit Page, and it's a great pleasure to have you today with us. Great to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Awesome. I have heard of your uh, content. I have watched your content. I have read a lot of your research papers, and uh, I've been fascinated with uh, everything that you bring. I remember specific conversations with uh, Sean Bearden. 
um and uh, unfortunately that podcast is uh, is not continuing anymore uh, but the content that's been there is of great value and uh, i thought today um we could leverage some of your experiences to our our listeners and uh, we'll get into that in a in a minute or so but how about we get started with the introduction of yours and uh, what you do currently and what's your research focus yeah sure so um i'm a professor of applied physiology at the university of exeter which is based in the southwest of england in the uk um my research and all of my teaching and you know my my whole <laughs> um my obsession really is with distance running and the physiology of distance running the limitations to endurance exercise performance but as a former runner myself it's really it's really running rather than cycling or swimming or rowing that I'm particularly fascinated in so um all the research that I do really is geared towards understanding what we can do to make runners faster than they are presently and most of my work is obviously with elite runners but that doesn't mean to say that uh, there aren't examples there there aren't lessons that can be learned from the elite that we can apply to the sub elite and the recreational so so I do a lot of a lot of time in the lab um investigating you know key questions as to what what is it that's causing us to fatigue why can't we run faster than we do so really it's a lot to do with oxygen uptake um how much you know what's the maximal rate at which we can consume oxygen how efficient can we be what's the highest oxygen uptake that we can maintain for a long time you know that's important for marathon running but in addition to my research i'm really interested in actually applying that research directly to athletes so i've always had um a parallel track if you like where i've been a consultant to to nike or to british athletics and you know i've worked with a number of um leading um world leading distance runners and uh you know that they provoke me with new questions and i take some of the cutting edge research that we do and let them know about it first so they can apply it to their practice awesome and do you also take any uh coaching assignments or not really not not really i mean i um <clears throat> i mean i think running is interesting it's not like you know running is really about your fitness there's not really a skill set to it it's not very technical so while i'm so i'm a physiologist and when i evaluate runners in the lab i do like to see what training they've done because when i interpret their data i can usually you know that help knowing what training they've done helps me to understand where their weaknesses and where their strengths lie and then i make recommendations so what i don't do is write out a whole training program for them i see that as the the job, job of their personal coach to you know to work that stuff through but i can give some advice and some recommendations as to how they might wish to rebalance their training in you know, a bit more of x a little bit less of y so i don't do any um specific coaching but um in terms of sort of being an expert in running training i suppose i'm able to offer that sort of support to athletes and their coaches right sure uh you said in the start that um you work with elites and sub elites uh, primarily and uh, i also know that uh, you were involved in the first breaking two project uh, from nike how would we get started from there um how were you involved and how did you see that coming together we all saw the result of it and where we have reached since then i think before that it was sub 203 2057 if i'm not wrong and uh, and then from there it progressed to um kipchoge breaking the the sub 2 in the second project in in vienna so how was your involvement in the first one yeah well i think um i've been sort of discussing 
the prospect of a sub two hour marathon for a little while in academic conferences and you know as you say it was 202.57 so we've been getting progressively closer to the two hour mark for some time and myself and a guy called Mike Joyner from the Mayo Clinic you know we, we were saying for a long time this this is actually doable because there are so many things at the moment that count against runners running as fast as they possibly can for the marathon. I mean, you were t- telling me before we started that, <laughs> you know, you're running London and then New York in close succession. But, you know, elite runners maybe only do a couple of marathons per year. And that doesn't give you too many opportunities to really express your fitness. If you're a 100-metre sprinter or a miler, you get lots more opportunities over the course of a season to, to run. And on at least one of those occasions, you might be at your best. And all of the conditions might be really conducive to helping you to run fast as well, you know. But if you only run once or twice per year, and you know what it can be like in London and in New York, you can sometimes get really hot weather, you can get really cold and windy weather. And, and I th- you know, we started to think, well, if you got the best runners in their best shape and you gave them a really fast course and you guaranteed them good weather conditions and you incentivised them not to win the race, but to actually run as fast as they could, that was the whole name of the game, then there's no reason why they couldn't break two. So I'd been professing this for a while, and there were people who thought it was impossible. And, you know, um, But I think Nike felt, actually, you know what, this is the sort of thing we ought to get behind. And a lot of the top runners we work with anyway, we sponsor them. So this is actually within our compass to actually put on a show, um, select the best runners, give them the best opportunity. And, um, and I think Nike appreciated that while they have some absolutely wonderful in-house scientists and lots of great technology, they didn't have um, somebody who was a specific expert in the physiology of running. And I, th- I suppose my reputation as a researcher in the field, but I'd also worked with people like Paula Radcliffe previously for a long time during the course of her career up until and, and beyond her running the 215.25. So I kind of knew what it took to, um, to break world records. I, I know the sort of physiological attributes and traits you want to see in in runners if you're going to select them so the first phase of the breaking two project was actually to bring a load of runners to the lab and evaluate their physiology and select um, you know from the elite of the elite which of those might actually be capable of breaking two so I think they wanted somebody to help them in that selection process in the first place but also then to brainstorm with them about what are the things that we could do to really give those athletes the best chance of breaking two on on the day that we uh, eventually choose awesome and I think um, this was a, this was an experiment that got a lot of attention globally, and uh, and subsequently we uh, went on to achieve a sub two uh, in Vienna. Now, the conversation today also is related to running fast because in in its own relative ways, uh, because almost every runner uh, who's going to a race is looking to hit PR or looking to improve their timings. And I wanted to understand from you to just to set the basic principles of what it takes for people to run faster and and what are the core components that people need to keep in mind or physiologically, what are some of those things that will define whether you can run faster or not? Mm-hmm. Well, I mentioned, you know, the, the word VO2 at the beginning, which means oxygen uptake. And it's really to do with that because... When we exercise, we, 
we've got an, um, an aerobic system which involves the utilisation of oxygen and we've got an anaerobic system. And when we're talking about endurance exercise and distance running, half marathons and marathons, it's almost entirely aerobic. So it's all about your aerobic fitness and your ability to actually use oxygen, transport it from the air that you breathe in. You know, there's, the air that you breathe in has got 21% oxygen in it. What you need to do is extract that oxygen, um, load it into your blood, deliver it to your muscles, and then your muscles use that to produce energy. So that's essentially it. So we have to get aerobically fitter, and that means that our, uh, our lungs, but in particular our cardiovascular system, our heart and our blood vessels, um, and our muscles you know, need to be working in harmony to, to really process that oxygen. And, and when it comes to the oxygen, there are, there are three key variables. One is what's the highest rate at which you can use that oxygen. That's called your VO2 max. So if you go on a treadmill, let's say, and I make you go slightly faster, slightly faster, slightly faster, until you're really gasping and you can't go on any further, um, I will measure your VO2 max. That's just before you become completely exhausted and have to stop. That's the highest rate at which you can process that oxygen. Um, so that's important. And the higher your VO2 max, that's an index of your aerobic fitness and all else being equal, the faster you'd be able to run a marathon. But it isn't just about the VO2 max, because obviously when you run a marathon, you're not running at your maximum intensity, you're running at a submaximal intensity. So two other things become important. One is, you know, when you're running at your marathon speed, um, how efficiently can you use that oxygen? And that's something called your running economy. So you and I might be running at, say, seven minute mile pace, and I might need to use more oxygen than you do. So I'm less economical. My running economy isn't as good as yours. And that might be because you've got better biomechanics than me. Your technique is smoother, whatever. So, so there's a, there's a sub-maximal oxygen uptake element to this as well, which we term running economy. And then finally, there's something called lactate threshold. So again, if I put you on a treadmill and I get you to run at a slow speed and I measure the amount of lactate in your blood, and then I get you to run at a slightly faster speed, and I stop you briefly and I measure the amount of lactate in your blood and we keep going, maybe do seven or eight you know, speeds higher than the one before, what we'll find is that your blood lactate concentration is, for the first few speeds is very similar to what it is at rest. It's actually really comfortable for you to run at those speeds. But there'll be a particular speed above which your lactate has risen and it can rise quite dramatically. And that's called your lactate threshold. Now when you're beyond your lactate threshold, things become unsustainable, you fatigue much more rapidly. So what we need is for your, you know, we, we want your VO2 and your running speed at the lactate threshold to be as high as possible. Because what we find is during the marathon, you run at probably just below your lactate threshold speed. So the higher that is, the faster you're, you know, the more comfortable your speed, your feel at a higher speed and, 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 and the easier it will be for you to maintain that speed over 26 miles. So those three things really are in, in combination of what we're looking for. Sure. Thank you. And uh, these are fundamental and basic. We keep discussing this in a number of conversations and at times it gets uh, missed. I've seen most people continue to look at their VO2 max on their devices and see whether it's improving, increasing or not, and, and only focus on that. But I think what I understand from here, and this has been alluded to earlier as well in several conversations, that uh, VO2 max in conjunction with an improved running economy and um, and having a lactate threshold that can be pushed um, to faster paces is something together is going to get an optimum uh, result. Is that fair understanding? 
Absolutely, yeah, spot on. Awesome. Now, um, I wanted to spend a little more time here with your help. That is to understand out of these three, which ones can be changed, impacted through training, through nutrition, and which are largely not variable and they're going to stay constant? Yeah, well, it, it sort of depends what, where you are in your running journey, because if you're a real beginner, um, you know, amateur, you've been sedentary until quite recently, you're just beginning your running journey, then they're all trainable. They will all go up, you know, almost irrespective of what you do. As soon as you start to do a bit more running, um, whether that's, you know, you, you, you go from running once a week to running two or three times per week, or you increase the distance each time, or you start to run faster, there'll be a stimulus to all of those things simultaneously. So, you know, you, your VO2 max probably will go up. And remember, your VO2 max is in mils of oxygen per minute per kilogram. So as you get fitter and your body mass comes down, then your VO2 max might all, you know, even without a boost in your aerobic fitness, just being lighter can increase your VO2 max. So, so it's likely that your VO2 max will improve in the first few weeks or months, even first year or so of your running uh, training. Um, your running economy tends to improve at the speeds at which you train. And you can imagine that if you go out and you, you're always running at nine minute mile pace, eventually your body will find a way to, f to make it easier for you to run at that speed. You know, to begin with, your running technique might be really clunky, um, but gradually with time you get smoother. So your body's finding a way to make that exercise slightly slightly easier for you. Now, of course, what you'll probably do is run slightly faster. As a, so there's always this, this sort of battle. Um, and if you, you know, as, as we get better at delivering oxygen to our muscles and within our muscle cells, we, we grow something called mitochondria. And those mitochondria are able to process the oxygen. The more mitochondria you have, the less lactate you produce. So we find that over time, your lactate threshold shifts to a higher and higher speed. So all of those things will probably change quite positively to begin with. Now, what we find, if you've been training for some time, that um, the VO2 max eventually will reach its ceiling. Um, that doesn't mean to say that you can't continue to improve your performances because actually your running economy and your lactate threshold can still continue to improve. So a good example is Paula Radcliffe, who I've mentioned already, who I worked with for you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, what we found with her is that her VO2 max was very high right from the get-go. You know, um, she was in a, already a very talented junior uh, distance runner when I started working with her, and her VO2 max was over 70 mils per kilogram per minute, which is phenomenally high. But even when, you know, 15 years later, when she set the world record for the marathon, her VO2 max was pretty much the same. Hadn't really, hadn't really changed, but it was already high to begin with. And what had happened over the course of those 15 years is her running economy gradually got better and better and better. Her lactate threshold had shifted to a higher and higher speed until, um, you know, when, um, when we tested her just before she ran the 2.15.25, her lactate threshold was, I think, 18.5 kilometers per hour. You know, so she's running at very close to five minute mile pace before her lactate levels in her blood are even starting to go above resting values. And that's the sort of speed. So, you know, it makes it understandable that she could run as fast as she did for 26.2 miles when you understand that she can run at 18.5 kmh um, without, accru without accumulating any lactate. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it almost sounds superhuman, uh, but uh, like I said, even for us, um, we want to get better uh, from wherever we are at nine miles uh, 
um, uh, at nine minute pace to getting to eight thirty to eight. All of these sound sound good, and uh, at any stage we want to improve performances. I know that, that each of the three points that you talked about, there are coaching aspects to it, and I'm not going to get into detail there. So I'm going to stay on here and uh, get to a couple of other terms, and then because I've seen um, uh, you you have had great leadership on these points, and uh, and so I think it will be of immense value. In the start, I wanted to just get to these terms so that people get familiar with this again. Now, there is a term that you that you have talked about uh, regularly in your discussions that is critical power. And uh, and I wanted to understand from you, how do you term this and what's the, the definition of this? How should a runner look at critical power for running? Yeah, so to begin with, I think... So critical power applies specifically to sports where you're generating power. So we tend to think about it in relation to cycling, for example, where you measure watts on a bike. So the um, the equivalent in running is critical speed or critical velocity. So let's talk, I mean, they're equivalent. It's just that, you know, and, and what's important about it is the critical component of it. Um, and it's critical because what it basically shows you is is a specific speed below which you're able to reach a steady state in lots of variables which I'll come on to explain and above which you cannot so it's it's somewhat equivalent to the lactate threshold but I mean the problem is there's there's a variety I didn't want to overcomplicate it earlier but there are kind of a couple of lactate thresholds there's the first one where it rises above baseline and there's a second one where it really shoots away. Is that um, um, sorry? Is that VT one and VT two? Yes, you can think of it as that, or lactate threshold and lactate turn point. Yeah, or LT one, LT two, whatever you like. So, but essentially, we've got three domains. Okay, so if you're below your first lactate threshold, LT one or VT one, as you just described it, you're in the moderate domain, and you don't, you know, lactate is very close to baseline values you reach a steady state in your oxygen uptake really rapidly. So, I mean, you go out the door and you start jogging and you and it feels easy. You know, your VO2 rises and it reaches a stable level really, really quickly. If you exercise between your LT1 and your LT2, or between your VT1 and your VT2, you're in the heavy domain. Now, what will happen there is that you can still reach a steady state, but it just takes a little bit longer. You know, it... Um, it um, it might take you 10 minutes or so, it just takes a little bit of a while before you start to feel comfortable. Um, and then if you exercise above your LT2, and that's where critical speed is, then you've got much more of a problem because no steady state will be reached. Your oxygen uptake, even though the speed is constant, your VO2 rises with time. And whereas in the heavy domain, lactate is elevated but stable, in the severe domain, above LT2, above critical speed, it will always rise, rise with time. Um, and so you you can be, f- become fatigued um, really rapidly in that situation. Okay, got it, got it. Thank you so much. So if, uh, uh, if I as a runner need to look at critical power, critical speed uh, for my running, how should be starting to look at first to understand where my baseline is and how I can utilize this in my training I know you uh, you talk about a particular test and I would like to request to mention that as well. Um, but how do you think I get started if I need to think of critical speed for myself? Yeah, so it's the, the best way to think about it is if you've got a personal best or a personal record time for two or three shorter distances, then it's possible to calculate your critical speed. So for example, let's say you have a, um, 
and if you don't have a, if you haven't done a race you can always do a time trial but it would be good to know what your best time for say 1500 meters was or even 800 meters and maybe 3000 or 5000 meters so what you've got then is a series of speeds and I know the time that it took you to run those speeds so you've got the number of meters on the y-axis against the seconds that it took you to complete those distances and what you will find is that that should be a straight line so obviously a shorter distance takes you less time but you you end up you know let's say you've got three or four ideally you know data points race uh, distances on that line the gradient of that line is your critical speed and the intercept is is something called your d prime and that's that's linked to your anaerobic capacity but as runners we're really interested in the in the critical speed now as you get a bit faster particularly over the longer distances that will show that your critical speed is, has gone up, hopefully. So, um, yeah, and that, that enables you to determine um, what is the, the, that critical speed is the higher speed where you can still just about reach a steady state. And that's in terms of your oxygen uptake, your blood lactate concentration, but also a bunch of metabolites within your muscles as well. So it's, it's really this, you know, um, it's, it's the highest speed that you can run at and still... It's, it's the uh, kind of the ultimate limit for your oxygen transport and utilization system. You go just above that and you have to rely increasingly on anaerobic metabolism to supplement the energy supply. So that gives you some information about how you can balance your training because if you want a really strong aerobic training stimulus, then being just below your critical speed for maybe 10 minutes or so, doing some, what we call tempo runs, or you could do more extensive aerobic intervals near that speed whereas if you want to do um, shorter faster intervals then you do the speeds above the critical speed and you'd recover below it so that's more like your high intensity interval training that might be a good stimulus for your vo2 max but certainly we find with the marathon at the elite level at least um, elite runners can operate at a, you know just a few percentage points below their critical speed so for them, knowing what the critical speed is is really important, but it doesn't mean to say we can't actually, you know, usefully um, apply that same knowledge to to our own training, whatever level we're at. Sure. So if I understood correctly, we are saying, suppose I look at four different distances, that is say 5K, 10K, half and a marathon. I look at the time taken and uh, I look at the, so I look at the average speed. So you're saying if I if I try to graph these on X and Y axis, right, it should be a straight line. And we are saying the gradient of that is the, the critical speed. Yes. Although I wouldn't use I wouldn't use half marathon and marathon. I deliberately said 1500, 3K, 5K, because it's much better to do it from shorter distances. You could probably go as far as 10K, but beyond that, you start to get into different domain which skews skews the line a bit so it's better to try and predict the critical speed from your performances over shorter distances understand okay and uh, and so use this as a more like a an absolute um, um, ceiling that people should try to reach towards as a layperson if I were to think of it right to uh, to run a marathon and you talked about different paces below and above that that people can look at and above the critical speed is possibly only the HIITs, the interval training that uh, that will generally be possible. And uh, elites, you said that they try to be very close to the critical speed, but maybe 
the amateur runners will be uh, slightly or more below than the critical speed, right? Definitely, that's right. Yeah, I mean, remember that if you're an elite runner, you're covering the marathon in not much more than two hours, so your absolute yeah. speed will be will be much higher. So it's a fraction of you. You know, you'll be pushing up against your critical speed. If you're running for three, four, five hours, then the gap is going to be a bit bit larger. This is still useful to know. I mean, this is still the critical speed is going to be, you know, the sort it's going to be close to your ten k speed. I would say. So I was going to say, if you're an elite marathon runner, then your your marathon speed isn't very much slower than your ten yeah. k speed. But if you're a three or four hour marathon, then the gap's going to be much sure. larger. Sure. Makes sense. Now, uh, the test, the three-minute test, that is three minutes all-out test, how is that conducted and uh, how does that form a baseline of your current critical speed or fitness? Yeah, so I've given you one way by which you can calculate critical speed, and that's by plotting your best times at a variety of different distances. Um, we did think, you know, if, if you're trying to evaluate somebody in the in the lab as part of an experimental study and they haven't let's say they're not a competitive athlete, then what we typically do is bring them into the lab and exercise them to exhaustion on maybe four occasions. And that's quite a tough task, you know, <laughs> nobody really enjoys that. So we were trying to think up a way by which we could really make that uh, that estimate a bit more rapid. So we dreamt up this thing called the three-minute all-out test. And, um, and again, it was actually devised for cyclists on a, you know, on a stationary cycle ergometer. And the idea is that you put on a pretty heavy load and you sprint as fast as you can for the entire three minutes. Now, as you might imagine, you know, the first few seconds you generate a really high power, but it then starts to fall away. You can imagine, you know, it's it's really, really hard. Um, now, it's only three minutes, but it's a really, really hard three minutes and the power falls gradually and gradually but interestingly even though it remains a really hard test the power eventually starts to level off and the power that it levels off at is very close to the critical power that's for a cycle test so you know a quick and easy way to calculate or estimate the critical power is to do a three minute all-out test um, ideally you need a, a loader cycle ergometer to do that there's no reason why the same thing couldn't be applied to running um, now what you'd need is a, a track or a flat piece of road um, and you'd need a way to measure your speed but you'd, you'd start sprinting and of course you're going to fatigue but you should find that by the time you get into the sort of third minute that the speed that things are levelling off at is going to be close to your critical speed but it's pretty tough and um, there have been fewer studies done with running three minute tests than with cycling three minute tests so you know I'm not saying it's an easy way to do it. It's probably easier if you've got some best times already, uh, one mile, two miles, and three miles, or 1,500, 3K, and 5K to estimate your critical speed that way. Sure. Okay. Makes sense. At this stage, I wanted to take a question uh, from one of the listeners, and and this is slightly relevant to the conversation we have had just a few minutes ago. That is, um, she asked that when when we start to run and if, in the start, which most of us as beginners do it, um, when we are not fully warmed up, we try to run really fast. And uh, and then we are feeling really good. And all of a sudden, we stop feeling really good. And then you start to come crashing down and you're not able to continue for the half or marathon that you're running. The, the question was that, why is it exactly happening? What's really happening in 
in the body and, and why one cannot sustain that? Well, it's probably because um, the person has gone above their critical speed. And if you go above your critical speed, then everything is non-steady state. So basically you start to rely on not the aerobic system, which you really should be, you know, for, for a half marathon or a marathon, it really needs to be slow and steady and you're using the aerobic system fully. If you go too fast, you're going to be above this critical speed, above your lactate threshold, and you have to rely on anaerobic metabolism. Now, what happens there is that within our muscles, we have a sugar store, essentially, called glycogen, and we use that really, really quickly, and we convert that glycogen into lactate, lactic acid. And that lactic acid, there's lots of other things accumulate in our muscles as well. We've got a, an energy store called phosphocreatine. That falls. We've got something called inorganic phosphate, which goes up. Um, the acidity in our muscles gets high, you know, it basically it makes it more uncomfortable to run. And because of all of this distress, this lack of um, balance within our muscle cells, that causes us, our heart rate gets too high, we breathe really hard, um, and, it, and it just becomes unsustainable. There, there comes a point at which if your phosphocreatine levels fall too low, or your PI goes too high, or your lactate goes too high, then the muscle basically will not continue to function properly. Also, if you run out of that glycogen store, that sugar store that I said, um, then it's harder for muscle. You know, your muscles just feel tired as well. That's what happens when you run out of uh, glycogen during a marathon. So all of those things will happen simultaneously if you start too quickly. So the, the advice is don't start too quickly if you possibly can even though you might feel really good and you feel excited you know you just need to hold your emotions in check and realize that it's um it's a long way still to go true true and one of the other ways i i see it has worked for me is uh, uh warming up thoroughly because uh, as you warm up thoroughly uh, the body starts to know what you're capable of and what you're not capable of so i feel like if you've warmed up well, then whatever had to happen during the race will possibly happen early on and you'll start to get to know about yourself much quicker. Yeah, definitely. And, and actually what we find is, you know, when you, when you start running, if you imagine you've got a, your VO2 at rest when you're just standing on the start line is, is kind of here, and then you're running, the, the oxygen uptake required for your running speed during the race is probably up here. Now, when we start to run, our oxygen uptake levels don't go from there to there immediately they go up in a much slower fashion and what happens in this bit here so you imagine this is going up in a curvy you know it might take two or three minutes before the amount of oxygen you're breathing in and using matches what's required and until you get there you actually have to use some anaerobic metabolism and that's not so if you start too fast then there's an even bigger surge of anaerobic metabolism now what we find is that if you warm up in advance then reaching that steady state happens much more rapidly as well so you know you, you just get into that nice rhythm much sooner and you feel much more comfortable so totally agree that warming up is um is a very good thing to do of course if you're running a marathon then you probably should warm up during the race itself you know because it's all, you're already doing 42k so there's no point doing an extra uh, two or three k prior to that so the the point there is just start really really sensibly right Makes sense. Now, so far in the last 30, 35 minutes, we, we covered the basics of uh, what, is, what is important for one to, to run and run faster. 
and uh, and we cover this this question around the role of uh, warm up and why to not start uh, too aggressively but rather conservatively um i also see the other component of uh, running performance that's nutrition and um, and and i've seen this is something that people uh they keep looking for hacks they keep looking for recipes that will help them get faster etc and uh, i've seen your appreciation of uh, uh nitrate your appreciation of uh, beetroot and how that could help performance and i wanted to understand from you how do you think that really helps and what should marathoners look at when they're thinking of beetroot for example specifically okay i mean just just before we go to beetroot in term i mean there are no shortcuts really or hacks or anything you know and i mentioned glycogen and the glycogen comes is carbohydrate so the most important thing for a marathon runner is actually carbohydrate making sure that you start your marathon with your glycogen levels as full as possible because you're going to really rely on those that store during the race itself and any opportunity you get during the run to take on not just fluid but carbohydrate you know carbohydrate gels sugary drinks and so on that's really important as, as well so that's the most important nutritional tip i'm sure you've covered it in various other um, of your podcasts in you know previously but yeah just to just to add here um a couple of weeks ago i had the opportunity to speak with uh, louise burke and uh, she focused a lot around that yeah i'm sure she would have done yeah that's good to know yeah so i i you know i think the beetroot story is is secondary to the to the glycogen and the carbohydrate but anyway yeah turning then to nitrate um so nitrate inorganic nitrate is a molecule that we find in lots of green leafy vegetables spinach rocket various green leafy salads some some fruits as well rhubarb um radish but but also in beetroot and uh, of course you can create a juice uh, a liquid out of beetroot as well make beetroot juice and what we discovered um 10 or 15 years ago now actually is that when we asked some of our participants to consume beetroot juice the their running economy was slightly better so it just makes your muscles a little bit more efficient and it also enables muscles to produce more power as well there's more research being done on that so um yeah it's certainly one of the things that may possibly be advantageous not to the same extent as carbohydrate but if you're looking for an extra you know a couple of percent then being cognizant of um consuming foodstuffs that contain nitrate is probably sensible as well and and i think you know while you could take beetroot juice a few hours before you intend to compete you know don't do it just for the first time on race day practice it in advance but it's something that might give you a bit of a boost but in addition as part of our daily lifestyle and and the food choices that we make every day then choosing foods that are high in nitrate you know um, is probably good for our cardiovascular health anyway and our cognitive function what we find is that um, you know as as people get a bit older their blood pressure starts to go up because their ability to generate a molecule called nitric oxide within the within our bodies naturally just becomes impaired um, and nitric oxide is involved in a wide array of different processes um, including it, what it does is it dilates the blood vessels and if you've got more dilated blood vessels then your blood pressure is lower if you've got lower blood pressure you're less likely to have a heart attack or a stroke and so making sure that there's another way by which we can generate nitric oxide in our body and that's by converting the nitrate in the food that we eat into nitric oxide and so choosing you know salads occasionally um is probably quite a quite a good 
thing just for our general health as well as for our exercise performance. Sure. For beetroot consumption specifically, would you, um, I know it's also an RD's question, but would you suggest uh, uh, similar to carbohydrate, could they could, could runners load uh, beetroot uh, juice as well leading up to a race, would you think? Yeah, we, we think that taking the, the beetroot juice on the day of the race, about two to three hours before the race starts, is probably something that you should definitely do anyway, because you can have some quite short-term effects. But probably it would be sensible to take if, um, some beetroot juice in the days prior to that as well. So maybe two or three days before. Let's say you've got a race on the Sunday, then maybe Thursday, you might take a couple of shots of beetroot juice, and also Friday and Saturday, and then finally on the Sunday morning. Um, and we, we leave it, it has to be two to three hours because it takes a little bit of time for the body to actually process the nitrate in the beetroot juice. And what, one of the things that's quite important actually is the bacteria in our mouths, which actually activate the nitrate and turn it into nitrite. And then it's the nitrite levels in our blood that circulates, which can be easily converted into nitric oxide, um, both to help with our blood vessel dilation, but also with our muscle function as well. Sure. So maybe, a, 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 I'm not getting very specific, but maybe a glass of uh, beetroot juice or something could be good. Yeah. And these there's a company in the UK called James, uh, well, Beat It. Okay. And they've produced a, it's only 70 milliliters, but it's quite concentrated. There's a, there's quite a lot of nitrate in there. So that's just, um, that's just, you know, 70 mils isn't very much. So just one or two of those, you can swig that back and that gives you the amount of nitrate that we believe to be effective. Awesome. Super. Uh, thank you so much for the entire conversation so far. We are reaching the end of conversation and every time we open up for questions to our listeners, uh, they ask for one secret recipe of how to get faster. And I, I keep telling there is no secret recipe, but they want to hear from you. And uh, I wanted to understand from you, are there any resources, any, um, any specific tips, whether it's around training or it's around um, their um, nutrition or anything else from your experience, because in your experience, you have you've worked with world's best for the last couple of decades. And uh, would you suggest some uh, magic tips that runners could adapt to in their, uh, in their training? Well, the, the biggest tip I can give is consistency. You know, it's, it's actually just, just training, just, you know, I'm not saying run every day because not everybody is able to do that. You know, it might be that three times per week is the goal. But if the goal is three times a week, then do continue to try to run three times a week, even if you don't feel like it. I mean, clearly not if you're ill or you're injured, but if you, you know, ju just actually getting out the door and doing something. So there's no magic trip in, trick in terms of, you know, what is the, the, the magic session? Um, is the magic volume or magic intensity or anything like that that the runners that make it first of all they enjoy their running so you know that's important just as long as you enjoy it and you do it routinely and regularly and you don't get injured then you will make pr progress and if you look at people like i'll mention them again paula radcliffe elliot kipchoge it took them a probably 15 years of regular consistent training before they ran their best marathon times now, not all of us have got, you know, if, you, if you're already 50, then I'm not saying you're going to run faster when you're 65. But the point is that you, your body is remarkably adaptable and just going, even if it's a, not a very good session, even if you go out and you plod along and you're tired, doing that is better than not doing it at all. 
and your body will get a stimulus, it will make an adaptation. And the important thing is just to do tiny little bits, but really, really frequently, um, you know, weekly, monthly, yearly, and just stick at it. It's, it's called endurance, I think, for two reasons. It's endurance when you run the marathon, but it's endurance in the sense that this is something that you need to stick to for the for the long term. Yeah, you endure it for a lifetime. So stick to it and stick to it forever. Thank you so much. This was this was such a good way to end it. Hopefully, we will get to catch up uh, in London, right around London Marathon. And um, I I thank you again for uh, being here. This was such a fantastic conversation. It was it was my pleasure, and uh, yeah, best of luck to you with the podcast and, and your other endeavors and best of luck to all of the all your listeners as well i hope um yeah you know i hope wish them a, a lifetime of fun and successful running that was all for today i hope you enjoyed it i enjoyed it very much and i learned a great deal as i take off for london you continue to keep listening what we are doing and let us know how we are doing thank you very much